Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations, almost a decade's worth, about the cultures of consciousness. Um, I just finished giving a talk yesterday at the uh, Consciousness Hacking Conference here in San Francisco, the intersection of psychedelics, meditation, and um, technology. It was, a, it was a great time. I really enjoyed it. It was not only a lot of interesting folks, but it was well-structured such that I was able to go through an entire day at a conference, participating in every event, and it was all scheduled, lunchtime, breakout groups, whatever. There was always something to do. And I managed to make it to the end of the day not feeling like a burned-out husk. So that alone says that these guys are, are, have their finger on the pulse on how to navigate this kind of stuff. But then almost immediately, I'm turning around and looking at another excellent conference that I'm looking forward to in two weeks' time, which is great. I get a little bit more time. And this is the upcoming Queering Psychedelics Conference, also in San Francisco. Uh, and this is sponsored by Shakruna uh, and my, my pal Bia Labachi, who's been on the show uh, before. I'm super psyched about this uh, conference, and I'm an honored and somewhat awkwardly so that I'm participating in it as a longtime queer fan, but a you know, demographically straight person. Um, I'm taking on uh, the topic of, of presenting some of the histories of queer psychedelic counterculture, which is just as a counterculture historian, I've always been interested in and have a lot of experience with folks and blah, blah, blah. So it's really wonderful stuff. And I'm really happy to be participating in what to my mind is an extremely important conversation because it's not just, you know, the, the, the sort of psychedelic scene, psychedelic discourse in the last year or two is, you know, really transformed. And like a lot of things going on right now, there's a lot of questions about social justice, about identity issues, about power, about capitalism. Um, and so, you know, it's another zone where we're wrestling with these things. And what I'm particularly keen about with the Queering Psychedelics is that it's not just about issues of representation, issues of, uh, you know, appropriate, you know, care, is there privilege in, in, in uh, psychedelic uh, healing modalities? Is there, are, is, there being, uh, is there enough room being made for minority perspectives, including sexual and gender uh, minorities? So there's that political angle that a lot of the speakers are talking to. But to me, there's also uh, not only the historical thing that I'm interested in, you know, presenting on, but a uh, I guess I'd call it an ontological problem. Like, is there something, I mean, to me, psychedelics are inherently queering in the broad sense of the term, as well as to some degree, the narrow sense of the term. I think that a lot of psychedelic cultures, at least in the West, modern West, have, have not only embraced queer people and been led by them in many cases, and that's one of the things I'm talking about, but has sort of produced a general queering of, of not just sexual orientation or ideas of pleasure or ideas of who or what can be a, a object or fellow subject of, of eroticism or love, but just a, a kind of embrace of all of the meanings of that term of enchantment and weirdness and um, the kind of twist away from the norm. So I, it, it's a, it, it feels to me like it's a, a conference and a topic that gets to layer some of these mystical meanings or ontological meanings on top of some very pertinent uh, historical uh, and political issues that are very germane today as psychedelic science is exploding and all the things you know about 
uh, are going down very rapidly. There's going to be some great uh, speakers there. I'm looking forward particularly to Tony Moss, who's going to be talking about the music side of these things and the you know one of the most significant currents of queer psychedelic counterculture has to do with music and dance music uh which is some juicy history that i'm really enjoying uh, boning up on now and also steve silberman is going to be pre- presenting an old friend of mine lives in my neighborhood uh one of the great writers and, and chroniclers of the grateful dead a, 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 an excellent journalist uh, and an author of a, a wonderful book on autism uh, he's done. He's done great. And I had to. I had to lure him into the festival. He's like, ah, I don't know. They're not really paying enough. You know, I'm a professional. I'm into freelancer. And I was like, man, you got to do it. You got to do it. So, I was happy and Bia convinced him as well. And then uh, another talk that I'm w- really looking forward to, and, and as a way of um, sort of introducing the conference and and uh, and and using that as a good opportunity to do a show, uh, is uh, is Dr. Alex Belser, who's going to do a talk on a queer a queer critique of the psychedelic mystical experience. So I saw that title. I'm like, yes, because I have this whole religious studies thing about how the ideas of what mystical experience is that are used in the social, in the social sociological formats and psychological uh, 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 questionnaires that they use in the Hopkins study and whatever are based on, very peculiar, particular, very historical ideas of what mystical experience is that I can totally deconstruct, you know, like that. And I'm like, what's going on with this thing? And so here's uh, Alex taking this on, not just as someone who's, uh, you know, uh, thinking about these things, but actually participating in these studies. Because as I went into his biography, I was like, Oh my God, this guy's like working on all the most interesting research from my perspective. He's, uh, and he's currently a clinical research fellow and a psychotherapy supervisor at Yale, my alma mater, which is kind of cool. But um, he's worked on the Hopkins uh, NYU study, uh, or he's working on the Hopkins NYU study, uh, uh, giving psilocybin to religious leaders. Very interesting. He's worked extensively on uh, researching and thinking about the uh, results of the uh, the the uh, NYU psilocybin anxiety end of life cancer patient study, and in so doing, thinking very hard about what is mystical experience, what's the difference and the similarities between psychedelic experience and non psychedelic mystical experience. Uh, what are the actual transforming factors that people are talking about? How do we think about what they're saying? How do we uh, do all this? So that's super cool. And then he's starting a whole, he's, he's participating in the start of a whole um, clinical research uh, training center in New York City called Nautilus Sanctuary. They're doing some very interesting thinking about how to t- scale and take forward psychedelic therapy. And it's, you know, the cat, it's, it's, everybody's playing their game now. I mean, it's moving so fast. And there's some really clear thinking that they have about how to change some of the operating principles of how to do psychedelic therapy in ways that look forward to, again, a scalable world where more people, there's more accessibility, and there's ways of folding in uh, non-professional people into the process, dealing with integration as part of the process. So we'll be talking about some of that stuff as well. Anyway, with no further ado, Alex, so much for joining me on Expanding Mind. Eric, thank you for having me. This uh, it's a real delight to be here. Well, one of you know one of the things I got a I got a real gas out of when I wrote to you. I was like, you know, I you know I mean you know I meet a fair number of of, of uh, researchers and clinicians these days, and 
you know, I know some of them have been around the block for a long time, but a lot of people, you know, they, they, they come from their, their own currents into this work and they're not often that, well, hep. And you're like, yeah, didn't I see you at Mind States in 2001, which is like super OG, underground, fringe, psychedelic conference world. And I was like, oh my God, this guy's great. <laughs> But, you know, that was the only psychedelic conference that was happening in the early aughts. There was nothing else to be had. Uh, you know, it was funny because I, I remember when you re reached out to me, I was like, I, Eric, I think I saw Eric almost 20 years ago give a talk. Uh, so it's good to close the loop here a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, that's just, but it also tells me that you've been interested in these things, thinking about these things, presumably exploring them to, to whatever degree is, is was appropriate. Uh, you know, outside or initially, you know, that your, your, your research came really out of very deeply held interests uh, for, for a long time. Yeah, I think that uh, it's been one of the formative parts of becoming a, a career psychologist and professional in the field. You know, I was I got into psychedelics young enough in the late 90s in college that I was able to take some advice about how to think about how to build a career of meaningful work around this topic. And, uh, you know, I was interested in getting professional credentials and studying in the academy. But uh, and those tools and that way of thinking has been incredibly helpful. Um, but I, I appreciate the sort of off the wall queering discourses that happened around psychedelics because they, they really challenge us to ask deeper penetrating questions about what's actually happening with the medicine work, the clinical practice, and the sort of sociological implications of what it means for there to be a quote-unquote renaissance in psychedelic medicine. Um, and I think it's uh, we're really on the cusp of something that is going to uh, shift, uh, shift a lot of boundaries in the next few years. It's already happening so quickly, as you put it. Yeah, and and I really it's just it's just a great relief for me to hear someone who's really working in the clinical and research field who isn't necessarily one of the you know the elders, but someone who's 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 you're the you know just the kind of first flush of your career, and you're thinking about these sociological, aesthetic, weird, spiritual questions, not in a formulaic way. You know, sometimes we hear about the spiritual aspect or the spiritual experience, and it, it almost becomes instrumentalized. It becomes almost like a mechanical process that has to do with this pill that we can just sort of farm it out, and then we're going to get these solutions. And that, in a way, that's a, a little bit of inevitability in just the whole, you know, clinical approach, especially when it's trying to go out into the world and create, you know, sustainable businesses and, and treat real people in our, you know, given situation. Uh, but it also feels like it's really important to keep kind of asking the questions that you're doing. And so I'd love to hear from your, you know, your, the, your research. You've, you've co-written co a, a number of papers. Um, but maybe starting with the work that you've done looking at the end-of-life end anxiety with cancer patients and how psilocybin is working there. And how did learning more about how these people were experiencing their psilocybin trip, how it was integrating, how it was changing their attitudes, their emotions, their their feelings about the future, about death. Yeah. Uh, how did how did that sort of open up this question of the these deeper implications of what it means to be introducing more and more people to uh, psychedelic e experience? You know, we one of the reasons, and, and we 
we borrowed largely uh, from uh, Dr. Charlie Grobe at UCLA, who really uh, began the, the research with psilocybin to treat people with end of life existential distress uh, and cancer diagnosis. Uh, and then Hopkins and NYU uh, continued some of that work. You know, there had been a long history of working with psychedelics in the 50s and 60s with people with end of life uh, distress and issues. I mean, the two largest indications in the 50s and 60s were around uh, alcoholism, substance use disorders, and then people dealing with cancer and end of life distress that uh, was carried through the Spring Grove work uh, into the 70s. And, um, you know, it seemed like a good fit. Uh, and we were looking at clinically elevated anxiety and depression. It's no surprise that people uh, facing end of life issues are going to deal with some increased symptomatology around these matters. And it's no surprise that we're going to have some difficulty with that. We know that this conversations around death, the confrontation with death is one of the most avoided conversations in medicine. You know, most medical, res medical residents and psychiatrists don't deal with it very well. And in my field in clinical psychology, it's not really part of our training oftentimes. And uh, so you have the, the double injury of having uh, a life-threatening diagnosis and the second injury of having to go through the medical regimen around it, a chemotherapy, radi uh, radiation, uh, sort of the uh, you know, ongoing onslaught of dealing with uh, the medical profession, which sometimes can be good in healing and is oftentimes uh, destabilizing and difficult um, without necessarily a, a psychospiritual framework or a sociological relational support mechanism to help you understand what's happening. Uh, you know, we, in this study, it was a double-blind, placebo-controlled study, and, you know, what I'll do is just sort of highlight some of what we found uh, and then sort of talk a little bit about your question around, you know, what the meaning of it was for the participants, because I had the opportunity to interview in depth our participants uh, in multi-hour interviews to really get at what, what happened for them in the room. Uh, Great. You know, so, you know, so we were, we were measuring anxiety and depression. We, we treated 29 people uh, in our, in our uh, room, which was off of First Avenue in Manhattan, you know, potentially not the ideal place you could imagine in a busy Manhattan's uh, dense urban setting. But we found a beautiful room and we set it up with uh, living plants and natural objects of wood and stone. And we asked participants to go into their own deep experience. So we asked them to close their eyes. Uh, we encouraged them to wear eye shades and to listen to music. And in, not to be, you know, quote unquote, distracted with external stimuli, but to go into their own inner experience. And this was in a room with two psychotherapists with whom they had developed a deep and trusting rapport. Uh, so they had lots of psychotherapy uh, before, during, and after so that they weren't just going into a room with two strangers. Uh, they were really connected with their therapy team. And uh, what we found was really quite astounding in, and, uh, in the sense that we had rates of, uh, this is a crossover design, so we had two arms, people who received psilocybin and people who received an active placebo. And uh, the people having uh, anxiety, uh, the anxiety rates reduced from 58% down to 14%, uh, and depression from 83% down to 14%. So our response rates were in the 60 to 80% range. Um, this is, you know, active treatment versus placebo. So we had, you know, active treatment um, went significantly down. 
yeah, and we had similar experiences to what people uh, had reported, even in the quote unquote healthy normal trials that Hopkins did, which is that 70% of our participants said that they had the single or among the top five most meaningful experiences of their lives in our little treatment room on First Avenue. 87% of participants said that their life satisfaction and well-being increased. Uh, and we had a variety of other things that changed uh, over the course of this treatment for people. People reported that they felt less demoralized about their um, uh, experience of cancer or of life-threatening illness. Uh, they felt increased hopelessness. Uh, their sense of spirituality and depth of spirituality improved and increased. Their feelings of well-being uh, and peace and meaning also increased. Uh, and curiously, people reported that they felt more altruistic, that they actually felt like they were able to or had a greater capacity to give back to their family, friends, and communities in important and meaningful ways. And this is after just one experience with psilocybin. So it really raised a lot of pretty big questions for us. Now, my passion has been in mixed methods and qualitative research because I think that we're really at the beginning of understanding what it is that giving people powerful medicines like psilocybin or MDMA uh, might engender. And so uh, we embarked upon a, a program of long uh, form, in-depth, you know, semi-structured, largely unstructured interviews with, with the patients in our trial. And uh, people just reported the most amazing things about their spiritual experiences. Um, and it got me really curious, and maybe we'll get to this later, about the nature of what it was that's causing the change. In psychology, we call this the mechanism of action, right? So you give somebody a substance, what are the pathways by which their healing or transformation occurs? And there could be multiple pathways, right? Like potentially things like CERT, uh, these, these uh, uh, psilocybin and other classic, quote-unquote classic serotonergic hallucinogens. There might be multiple neurophysiological pathways that might um, help cause the, the difference we see in depression rates or anxiety rates post-treatment. Uh, you know, it's anti-inflammatory, it's active at the serotonergic system. But what we find in, in, across the literature, and we found this in our study too, was that people um, experienced uh, what we were able to code or score as a, an intense religious, spiritual, or mystical experience using the MEQ, a, a questionnaire around their mystical experience. And we find that when people had a, a very strong religious or spiritual experience in the trial, that that score predicted their improvements in symptoms or clinical symptoms afterward. And so this is sort of the reigning or leading explanation of the psychological mechanism of action, that people have some sort of black box experience, something happens for them, it seems quite profound, and then they get better afterward, and they get better in a variety of different domains. Uh, I was interested in entering into that black box a little bit with them. So we asked them about, um, you know, all manner of their experience, what, what they found. And, you know, what we found was that rarely did people have like a complete white light experience. And we can talk about what that means later, a sort of non-dual experience if, to use uh, a particular type of uh, theological or religious discourse language. Uh, but what we did find was that people had um, many of the things that you would expect. They had profound, colorful visions, people having visions of visiting Gaudi cathedrals, people visiting vast plains of landscape, rivers being visited, 
by guiding spirits, by visitations from dead loved ones, from living people in their lives. Um, the majority of the people I interviewed met their members of their family on their, on their journey. They met their mother or father, whether alive or deceased, their children, uh, loved ones. And oftentimes those loved ones took the form of guiding spirits, like, um, like Virgil for Dante in the, in the Divine Comedy. They helped guide them in some way through the journey. And so their experiences and visions were very colorful. They were synesthetic in many ways. They were um, also profoundly about the body. Um, so this was not something just happened in the realm of thought. People had experiences of feeling like they were in a cloud forest and they could feel the vapor and the wet of the cloud as it moved against their bare forearm. They actually felt water vapor in, in their forearm. They could listen to the music and have a, a really rich synesthetic experience of the music in their body. But these are also cancer patients. So we had people who had profound anxiety about cancer recurrence, about tumors in their testicles, in their abdomen, in their breasts. And um, we had a, a small number of people who had physical experiences where they felt like they were aware of, or they perceived um, either the cancer or their fear or hatred of the cancer as a sort of black mass in their body. I had a one young man who said that he felt like through the psilocybin experience, he was able to powerfully eject like push out this black cloud mass that had occupied his body and it came out like a mushroom cloud, like an atomic explosion and it, it left him in some way. And he found that profound expulsion of the fear of cancer from the body to be liberating or um, relieving in some important way. And since then he has reported that he no longer has to anxiously check or be worried about recurrence of cancer. That's, so what's interesting right there, what just pops in my head, is yeah. just uh, how there you have almost a, uh, you know, because, you, you know, as a, as a religious scholar, someone who under, knows a lot about visionary experiences and religious experiences around the world, you know, there's all these resonances. And so clearly we're talking about something that is in the same do general domain as what we would call religious or mystical experiences without psychedelics but in that particular case there's a, is a much more kind of concrete connection where it, it, you, there, there's so much of, of uh, shamanic healing involves the kind of performed story of masses in the body that can be sucked out or pulled out you know uh, scraped away this kind of sense that that there's a that by materializing the affect the emotion or the fear in this case uh that it, there's a sort of way of handling that within the the kind of opened up body of the psychedelic body uh and it's it's a really great example of how which is i think one of the things you're talking about is just how wide the range of experiences that had religious or mystical import for people but when you get down to the the nitty-gritty of what they were like, they're, they're happening in all sorts of domains and dimensions with the body, in relationship, uh, in nature, you know, and sometimes in a non-dual sense of oneness with all reality. And my impression from your writings about this work is that that diversity 
is one of the things that you really came away from from this qualitative study. Yeah, I, you know, I was interested in the diversity of the experience. So um, one of the problems with our methods right now is that uh, you know, like somebody who loses their keys and then search, searches under the light, we only know what we measure in any of these clinical research studies. And I think that we've done our best oftentimes to put, you know, when you write a clinical protocol, it's a hundred page document and you throw in as many assessments as you can without trying to burden the participants with an onslaught of questionnaires. Uh, but we don't necessarily measure um, all the things. And so the diversity of experience has been really difficult. And I mean, some of the findings that I think that we're getting not just in the cancer trial, but also in the religious professionals studies. Um, this is a study of religious leaders. These are people who don't have any clinical diagnosis of any sort. They don't have cancer. They're otherwise healthy individuals, but they are priests, and clerics, um, imams, uh, that uh, Zen teachers that have made their life and livelihood uh, pursuing uh, a serious uh, faith or wisdom tradition, and they're, and they're making their living and their livelihood doing that in their religious communities. Uh, this is a study at NYU headed by uh, Dr. Tony Bossis and Dr. Stephen Ross, uh, and also at our uh, sister site at Hopkins in Baltimore. Uh, we see similar themes emerging. I'm interviewing these professionals in their field, and they frequently have experiences, I mean, you use the shamanic body or the psychedelic body, but these are deeply embedded embodied experiences. And they're um, the, the physical soma of the body, not just in terms of the, the traumas that may be kept in the body, memory that may be kept in the body, the concretization of thoughts, affect, or feelings that are somehow materialized or made more concrete that are in a way that's able to process through the psychedelic experience. Um, these, these experiences are profound and incredibly important, um, but also embedded in relationships. I mean, literally embedded in relationships with people that appear to people in their uh, psilocybin experiences, but embedded in the relationships of the person who drops them off at the clinic in the morning and picks them up at night, the way that they tell and narrate their story to friends and loved ones afterward, including the clinical team, the therapists that they're in a deep relationship with, they're doing some really heavy uh, lifting, right, in, in the room. Um, and uh, those sort of uh, connected human relational experiences seem uh, like powerful spiritual mediators for people. You know, these are not... I think there's been a sort of pull to understand the individual in an atomistic way, right? This, uh, the lone yogi on the mountaintop who has a divine revelation of some sort or some uh, attainment to spiritual knowing or enlightenment as being a solo journey. And uh, again and again, uh, that particular framework seems to be repudiated by this experience, uh, the, what we're hearing from participants in this experience. Well, it, it feels like here we're getting towards, you know, the, the some of the topic that you're, you're going to be talking about at, at Queering Psychedelics, and uh, and and it, it has to do with the way that a certain idea of what mystical experience is, uh, you know, came about historically. It had to do with Aldous Huxley. It had to do with the ideas that we call perennialism, uh, uh, basically with non-dual or impersonal uh, ideas of uh, uh, achieving oneness with the Godhead or the identity of the soul with the universal. And that this very specific development 
in the you know starting in the early 20th century for various historical reasons becomes like the central model of psychedelic experience so that the especially when people are claiming religious or mystical experience on psychedelics it tends to be organized along these lines and that while there's you know phenomenological reasons to talk about that and that this is a you know, a noble current in the history of the world's wisdom traditions, it's also profoundly distorting. And and I'd, you know, love to hear some more detail on this because you've worked much more closely with the actual questionnaires. But my understanding is that the MEQ that you mentioned, which is the kind of de facto or, you know, the, the reigning questionnaire to determine what a quote-unquote mystical experience is, it rests on work in religious studies and in, in, you know, spiritual psychology that's from the 1960s that's very easy as a historian to go, ah, yeah, that's not, no, that's kind of a problem. No, actually, that doesn't withstand critical uh, thinking at this point, at least in the history of religious studies. So what I remember when I, when I met Roland Griffiths, I tried to talk to him about this. I was like, I was like, Roland, that stuff's all great. Like, yes, all of those features of this questionnaire are real things that happen to people and they clearly have to do with what we mean by mystical, mystical experience. But there's so much else that's loaded into that model and there's so much that's ignored that it's, it's really actually distorting, I believe, our ideas of what religious experience is, what mystical experience is, what is important about psychedelic experience. Like, oh, you didn't have a unity trip you didn't you didn't have a ego dissolving uh oneness with the universe trip you, you instead you talked to animals or you uh you know remembered your mom or you walked down a corridor or you felt um you know energies moving in your body well you know maybe next time kid uh and i'm i'm i'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit but you've really worked with these questionnaires with people's experience and and it's I sense from your the topic of your of your uh, talk at, at the upcoming conference that you also have some real questions about how we think about and particularly how we you know map and uh, you know sort of concretize ideas about mystical experience in ways that have to do with how we think about these experiences. Yeah, so I you know I. Uh, there's part of the problem with studying psychedelics is that they're so the topic is so multidisciplinary that it's difficult for any one person to feel like they have sufficient training background and expertise to, to really tackle any one question. And so it's really a, an amazingly collaborative endeavor. I, you know, when you're a psychologist, if you find a measure that works and is predictive of outcome, then, then great stick with it. But I think it does really flatten. Uh, so let me just try to outline this, and I'll, I'll be talking in greater depth, but the current sort of psych psycho-spiritual religious explanation is that people have a profound experience. We can measure it using this questionnaire, the mystical experience questionnaire. Uh, and the, the, the problem, I think there's a few problems with that. And, and I, I want to forward four basic critiques. And I call these critiques a theistic critique, um, a nature mysticism critique, uh, and then uh, as a queer person, I want to mount a queer critique. And, and this is sort of bound up with feminist and, and criticalist critiques around power, the body, uh, intersectionality. And then fourthly, make a methodological critique. So um, I don't want to get too heady and maybe I'll just sort of summarize. But, you know, I think that one of the problems is that 
um, there, I think Eric, in one of our previous discussions, you described this as, uh, you know, these, these lesser experiences that people, people often report, um, even in underground settings or ayahuasca circles. But we see this in some of our psilocybin trials. Um, the, the quote unquote lesser, uh, experiences, uh, don't, there's a, an implied hierarchy of, of religious or mystical experience and that the crown, uh, for many people is a sort of, uh, non-dual, uh, formless, shapeless, odorless, colorless experience. Um, the, the crown jewel would be the Advaita, sort of Adanta experience, or what Huxley called the uh, perennial philosophy. And anything beneath that, or seemingly beneath that, is on a lower rung, or somewhere, you know, as the person tr uh, treks up the mountainside, but it's not actually the peak. And um, it assumes a sort of idea that uh, of monistic mysticism, that mysticism is one, and that uh, there may be multiple roads, but eventually we're leading to one uh, attainment or one realization. Uh, and of course, um, a lot of the work in the current measure is based upon the work of W.T. Stace. And Stace was a scholar of religion in the 60s, uh, and much of the questions that, the questionnaire that he put together that we use today in our measures, even now in 2019, uh, are based upon interviews with people who had these sorts of experiences, either in the West, in the Christian tradition, or in Advaita non-dual philosophies. And the problem with that, one of the problems with that, is that it's a highly uh, etic tradition, meaning you're taking a questionnaire that was developed with a completely different population, with a completely different, potentially different set of experiences, and then just wholesale picking it up and plunking it down uh, into the psychedelic experience and hoping that what you measure actually measures what's the underlying phenomenon that's going on. And it's not emic. An emic would be a bottom-up rather than a top-down way of developing a measure. And so the best practice in psychology is to use an emic measure, which is that you, you do the hard labor of interviewing people. You do the hard labor of understanding the variants and the general themes that arise, and then you design questions to try to understand how to measure the underlying constructs of what's going on. It might be one construct, and the MEQ sort of measures a few different constructs leading towards this non-dual, uh, you know, prioritized spiritual experience. Um, but we see again and again that Stace says things like, um, these are lesser experiences, he calls them hocus-pocus, or mystery-mongering, quote-unquote mystery-mongering. And so he's not really honoring the intermediate or beginning states as he understaw them of people who experience um, in their psychedelic visions. Um, and so, you know, there's a variety of critiques we can make around that. I mean, the, the, the first one, of course, is that people often have an experience with a, a vision of a god, a spirit, an angel, um, uh, an entity in the sort of DMT discourse, some other being, which seems to have... Um, access or embodies a type of wisdom. It could even be the person's um, higher, um, an embodiment of their own self, highest self. Um, and this sort of theistic experience of an ex encounter, the encounter moment, is seen as a lesser experience. And yet we consistently see this in psychedelic experience that well, people well, have. It, here I can't help but interrupt because what's so fascinating is that this, that very problem runs through the history of how we think about mysticism. So setting aside psychedelics, it's one of the great questions. Now, I, and I suspect you, are, am essentially a pluralist. I think that 
mysticism is many things, that there are many mountains, that they mountaintops may all resonate with one another, but you don't get there the same way, and they don't ever don't even necessarily look the same way, and nor should that, and nor should we expect them to. I respect unity consciousness. I re, I've I've tasted it on occasion. I respect the the earnestness and and desire to have a language of unity, but I think that it really obscures this kind of pluralism. And the and the most obvious example of that is when you when you try to say that there's that mysticism is ultimately on one scale that we all have within us the potential for mystical experience and that regardless of our religion it ultimately takes the same form you have at the very peak this problem is it a unitive experience or is it an experience of relationship with god and you know for various historical reasons i'm more familiar with and uh resonant with the former but the latter is also part of my own experience and certainly an incredibly rich part of the literature. So if you're looking at this, you're going, what does it mean to say that a Christian mystic who has this per- personal encounter with God in this absolutely phenomenologically bizarre and wondrous and transformative way is somehow, wait, that's down this ladder? Like, what level is that? And then you're like, what is the point of this ladder? Like, what do we what do, can we just get rid of the ladder here and try to have like a multiplicity of of possibilities so even before we even talk about psychedelics this issue is is a is a a, a knot in the ideas that people have uh, uh about mysticism yeah and i think that um you know and i just want to underscore that um you know i, I have my own background and history here I, I, but i'm we do our best. I, I earnestly try to do my best to use the language and the words that our own participants are using to make sense of their own experience. And, and so we see this repeatedly in how they talk about their experience, which is that, uh, I mean, the second critique I might make is one around um, nature mysticism. You know, So if you look at the paintings of Luis Eduardo Luna, who painted in the ayahuasca tradition, they're profoundly colorful. They have uh, sound and vision and color and animals and Icaros. Uh, and this works on Mendel Kalin's work around music. I mean, these experiences of the three worlds of ancestors of animal spirits um, are really completely not measured in our current sort of uh, assessment paradigm. But people experience them. And I think that we should be asking these questions and measuring them. You know, Maria Sabina's vision um, and the way that she spoke about her uh, training and experience of the mushroom spirits is vastly inconsistent with a monistic theology. Um, and in the Christian tradition, I mean, we see other women leaders in the area, like Evelyn Underhill's work on mysticism in the Christian tradition. You know, oftentimes these are relational experiences or theistic experiences that are poo-pooed or uh, discounted in some way by um, the idea that the, the apprehensiveness of the one uh, is the only att- uh, attainable, uh, the only goal to attain. And as Stace put it, the rest are borderline cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I think that um, it's, it challenges us uh, in a variety of ways to think uh, more broadly about how to understand what's deeply happening for people. Yeah, yeah well, here, here I just want to interrupt and, and, and sort of, 
uh, ask you to talk about that from the queer perspective, which is one of your other points of view, is that how does this problem in the fetishizing, essentially, of a certain model of unitive experience as being the, you know, uh, the ultimate goal, and if you do, somehow every, any, everything else that happens is, is, is lesser, um, how that also, uh, you know, creates a, a particular problem from queer identity, queer experience from that, uh, that angle. Yeah, you know, I've been I've been having in anticipation of this upcoming queering psychedelics uh, conference in San Francisco in a couple of weeks. I've been having a lot of conversations, and some of my thinking about queer spiritualities, uh, and I define those in a plural way, come from uh, really helpful conversations I've had with um, my friends and colleague uh, Nick Mendoza at Harvard, Jay Michelson here in New York and Brooklyn. Uh, you know, and, and the question is like, what is a queer spirituality? How do we understand queer experience? I mean, one of the problems with not just psychedelic research broadly, but research, clinical research across the board is that we tend not to even ask people, are you queer? Are you LGBTQ? What gender identifications and your sexual identity and orientations? Uh, so we don't actually know at baseline in a real like fundamental way, whether or not what we're doing mostly for straight individuals or cisgender individuals works for um, uh, gender nonconforming people, trans folks, and uh, queer folks. Uh, so that's you know problem, big problem number one. And and I I will say there's been some movement on that. I mean in the maps, I, I'm a study therapist in uh, the maps phase three study of MDMA as a uh, assisted psychotherapy as a treatment for PTSD. And in the in the large multi-site trial they're running now that we are asking people, and I think they will be running sub-analyses to look at uh, their gender identity and their sexual orientation, which I think is, is critical. When it comes to the spirituality question, it gets a little, you know, the critique gets a little bit richer. And, you know, well, first of all, like, Queer spirituality and the radical fairy tradition. I think that Eric, I know you talked about the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, which informs much of what's happened at Burning Man. Um, a lot of these, this movement is rooted in a specific historical power experience around the plague years of the 80s and 90s. Uh, and so the queer spirituality is bound up with a sort of um, experience of not only the body, the sick body uh, with AIDS, uh, but also the, the reclamation of the body in terms of reclaiming um, queer sexual energy, reclaiming uh, a sense of pleasure and joy in, in physical touch and practice with one another, reclaiming a sense of community and um, family of choice rather than family of origin, especially for many individuals who uh, grew up in families that were highly rejecting. And we see across the board for queer folks that um, the highly disproportionate rates, the rates that are two to three times our straight counterparts uh, of higher than average uh, rates for depression, anxiety, substance use disorders, uh, post-traumatic stress. And consistently, the research shows that is not because uh, that is not due or traceable to the person being a sexual minority or gender minority person, that is due to the extra stress, the sexual minority stress, the gender minority stress, that is part of a structural homophobia and structural transphobia in the environment, that a lifetime of additional messages of being inferior, experiences of discrimination, 
victimization, stigma, messages to hate oneself, messages of shame. These um, take a toll on the physical body uh, in terms of cortisol studies that look at the actual burden of stress on the body and in terms of the symptoms that uh, queer folks experience. And so when you look at queer spirituality, uh, especially in regards to medicine, we see measures that aren't necessarily looking at some of these more deeply embodied and related measures. And we also see um, a sort of lack of a social justice paradigm or a lack of a political critique throughout the research. Um, and I think that there's potentially very good reason for that, but the queer spirituality movement is deeply bound up um, with queer liberation, um, the queer liberation movement, which is an inherently political movement. I mean, we're coming up upon the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. I live in New York City and, you know, the primary march in the city has become largely a corporatist uh, parade where we have Coors Light and other big corporate sponsors coming through and Goldman Sachs coming through to sponsor floats. And uh, there's not really a sense of community ownership. Um, but groups like the Radical Fairies and other um, largely more marginal groups that have a deeper community um, root and a deeper sort of sense of spiritual embodiment in their practices um, are trying to reclaim this sort of public tradition. And well, I think in yeah, well, yeah, one thing that just, you know, brings up for me is, you know, the tension in modern, you know, queer po uh, political movements, liberation movements between assimilationist and radical positions, you know, it goes all, like, all the way back. You know, you look at the Mattachine Society and Harry Hay, and there's already you see these tensions, and they just keep kind of iterating themselves. And at certain periods in time, the more radical possibilities lead the way in the, the early 70s, let's say, and then at other points... Uh, more recently, the kind of assimilationist or whatever you want to call the kind of point where, no, we're just like everybody else. We want marriage. We want to have kids. We want to just reproduce the social norm. And, you know, that's fine for some people. It's not a critique of people who just want to you know be let alone and live their lives however they choose to live their lives. Uh, I don't have any problem with that or getting, you know, officially married or whatever. But yeah. the radicalism of... Uh, queer history and of queer possibility, which is, you know, a radicalism that everybody's got to deal with because it's super, it's intense, it's challenging. It's like a different way of thinking about love, about the body, about, you know, like gender binaries, you know, like in so many religious traditions where there's an essential feminine, an essential, I mean, what do we, what do we do with, you know, queerness there what do we do with gender fuck in those kind of structures they're, they're really radical and so one thing that i'm really excited about this conversation about queering psychedelics is it, it seems to me that some of those radical elements are tied in with this question of queer spirituality in a really deep way such that by asking these questions we're able to get at some of these radical possibilities and challenges and create you know creative expressions at a time when it feels like the assimilationist side has been more successful or more uh, visible in uh, you know modern society, not you know, Yeah, Eric, and everything you said about the the tension historically between a radicalist versus an assimilationist tradition, I think you could have said the same thing for the story of psychedelics, right? So I think in the sense that um, the. I think that there are important lessons that we can learn 
in the psychedelic research field and the way in which our political discourses are shaped by these tensions that are in, in many ways parallel to the tradition around assimilationism versus radicalism. And I use radicalism in terms of like a power critique rather than, uh, you know, and the sort of reclamation of the more marginal aspects of not just identities, but um, the parts of ourselves that have been cast aside or disowned, uh, disavowed. And so, uh, so for example, like, you know, I think you're gonna give a bit of a talk on this, but, um, you know, queer leaders in the psychedelic movement from Burroughs and uh, Ginsburg to Ram Dass, you know, like Ram Dass really struggled with coming out of the closet, right, as somebody was attracted to men. And so it's, it seemed almost like it was easier to come out in a time, uh, and I, I get into sort of arguments with people around the use of the word coming out of the closet as not just a gay person, a queer person, but people use that language to talk about their experience of coming out as being into psychedelics. And, you know, I, I think there's something to be said for the intersectional nature of the psychedelic and the queer experiences. So I was at um, a Radical Fairy gathering recently uh, at Beltane, which is a spring festival where you wrap um, the ribbons of your intention around a maypole in community with other people. And as you weave your intentions together, you are uh, creating a, a, not only an individual, but a group cohesion tens tension around the axis mundi of the world and your intentions for the new year. And uh, a leader in that community said, you know, our magic is intersectional. The people at that gathering, like many psychedelic gatherings, come from multiple different spiritual and faith traditions. It's not coming out of just one lineage. So you'll get a conference together, like the upcoming Queering Psychedelics Conference, or really any gathering of interested, curious seekers at a psychedelic gathering, or even researchers, and they come from different religious and spiritual backgrounds um, across multiple faith traditions. There's an intersectional nature to this, which is not the lineage is not deeply held in, in one particular linear um, um, stream, which is handed down from father to son, from mother to daughter, from parent to child, but is rather individuals sort of come up out of families as queer or come up out of families as potentially interested in psychedelics. And those, uh, they're oftentimes bringing their own richness and background into the Malay, right? Um, for better and for worse, oftentimes causing significant controversy, but it's also like places like Burning Man, um, a bit of a meeting of the minds, like a real intersection, a road uh, of different lineages coming together. Um, and I think that that's potentially quite powerful. Yeah, it's a, it really, one thing you said that, 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 I, that I hadn't thought about before uh, that, that's exciting is, is the, the relationship with the family, that, that just as queer people in, in modern world often have to leave their family even to kind of turn away from them, at least at some points in their life, and find a new family in order to, to be accepted and to be affirmed that there's something about that in religion too that that you know a, a traditional religion is of course very patriarchal it's very much you know passed down or even some indigenous traditions it's very much clearly passed down to, through this sort of or, organic family you know localized structure but if you have to go outside of that you're going to create not only different kinds of families but you're also creating different kinds of religions that are more open to that sort of 
nomadic rekindling retribalization and you see that retribalization very strongly at least in the psychedelic culture that i know that that one of the things that attracted to me this, to the psychedelic culture back in the mind states days and in the earlier days of burning man i can't really speak for it these days was precisely the sense of a real desire to find new ways of, of coming together in family-like or tribal-like groups. And in that way, it seems like there's a, a real similarity with other sorts of folks, you know, like all the people who've come to San Francisco over the last 50, 60 years to find a new tribe, both because they're uh, queer or they're, you know, se uh, sexual minorities, gender minorities, whatever, and um, you know, freaks of all sorts. So there, there isn't real intimacy there. But I wanted to ask you: Do you do you have trouble with the the mapping of coming out as a term uh, onto psychedelics as well as 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 uh, queerness? Uh, huge controversy. Uh, you know, I I I think that actually my my friend and colleague Nishay Devineau has has thought a lot about this as a, uh, a not. <laughs> a non-queer person who, who finds the term useful. I, I personally find um, it helpful. I think it's a helpful metaphor. I don't think that queer people necessarily own the closet, uh, although I wouldn't want it to be, I think it, you have to be very careful when using that term. So the closet's a cultural construct, right? And oftentimes we put the burden on young queer people to quote unquote come out of the closet. Like, oh, I don't wanna ask this 12 year old boy if he's attracted to other boys because he'll come around to it in his own time. But in doing so, the, the, the walls of the closet are constructed from the outside in. The, the lack of interest, the lack of asking people about that is an actual way that the wall and the doors to the closet are kept high and shut. And um, so in many ways, the cultural construct around the closet in the psychedelic tradition, which is like, you know, you, even as a researcher, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Talk about your own psychedelic experience. You're damned if you do, because if you do, you're no longer, quote unquote, an objective researcher who has doesn't have a, you know, a, a, a horse in the race uh, because you ha you've been uh, uh, skewed subjectively by one's own experience with medicine. And you're damned if you don't, because if you have never taken the medicine, how can you possibly um, understand and do you know important clinical work or even be a therapist in a trial where people are taking this medicine obviously in the indigenous and many shamanic traditions you have to go undergo significant personal training in order to hold and carry and offer the medicine to others and so you know the closet around psychedelics is um the the shame and stigma around being queer is not unlike the shame and stigma of uh coming out of the closet and telling your boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, that you are interested in psychedelic medicine, telling your colleagues, your friends, your uh, family of origin that you've had an important psychedelic experience and it's, it's opened up a lot for you and you're trying to integrate it in some important way. Yes. And, the, and the secrecy and the, not only the, the legal structure, but the secrecy around um, psychedelic journey work, I think is often what it, it, 
is a factor in the unnecessary additional harms that are often caused by them. Uh, and from a harm reduction perspective, I think it would be help us as a culture to understand more open, compassionate, and affirming ways for people to um, learn with each other how to safely take these medicines with guidance facilitation and, and to have them be embedded in cultural practices rather than um, somebody ordering something off of the internet and taking it alone in their bedroom, which is truly one of the worst um, set and settings I can imagine for a novice person who doesn't have experience with this sort of uh, work. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a wonderful uh, uh, segue to talking about Nautilus Sanctuary, this clinical research training site you're, you're developing. But unfortunately, we're out of time. And I, I had a feeling that was going to happen. Um, but I, I want to mention that you're also just working on these issues on the ground in terms of how, again, we can scale uh, 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 these, these issues. I just wonder, we have like a minute left. If there's, of all the things that we're talking about, particularly the politics involved, what is the one improvement or change that you're, you're working on at Nautilus that you think is the most significant in terms of this issue of diversity and uh, accessibility? I think that at Nautilus, I'm working with a team of eight clinicians, and we are asking the hard question, how do you take a highly expensive treatment that was designed to maximize cl clinical efficacy and make it accessible to people? And that involves running groups, largely. And I think that group practice is powerful in and of its own right. It also happens to lower the cost barrier so that people who don't have means or access or privilege um, might be able to access these medicines in a way that is more financially sustainable for uh, the providers, but also the people who are coming to seek treatment. And there's a variety of ways of doing that, and we hope to answer those questions. And it's going to be an amazing ride in the next decade. I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. Well, I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks again, uh, Alex, for talking with us on Expanding Mind. Eric, thank you so much for having me. I, I look forward to uh, your next iteration and seeing you in San Francisco in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's great. It's going to be fun. Again, Queering Psychedelics is the first weekend in June here in San Francisco. Uh, until, you ne until next week, keep your minds open. Mm -hmm.